And um, we all, I think, in one way or the other can probably relate to the story of Job, um, but maybe not quite to the degree that it, that it happened to the man. So Job uh, was a man that feared God. He was a man that did everything he knew to do to serve God and not only to worry about his own salvation and his way of life, but he was also deeply concerned for his children and he would make sacrifices for his children. And that's kind of how the story opens up as explaining that about Job. Well, as the story goes on, you actually get teleported to heaven and you see that God is, is you know, dealing with the people that are coming to him with messages and the old accuser, Satan himself, comes before uh, God. And, and God says, well, what have you been doing? He says, I've been doing whatever I want to do here on earth. Uh, and God says, well, I don't think you could do it with Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, um, Satan says, well, you don't let me harm a hair on his head, so there's absolutely nothing that I can do. You, you take away that protection, and I will show you that his faith is nothing. Well, when uh, God says, okay, well, just don't harm his life. And so Satan goes about taking everything away from that man. All of his animals, his livestock, all of his wealth, kills his children. Uh, the only thing Job is left with is his wife. Um, and... You know, the way that the, that the story is portrayed, it's like Job is standing and someone comes up and gives him bad news. And while that person is still speaking, someone else shows up and gives him more bad news. And someone else shows up and gives him even more bad news. And that scene in Job where he just keeps hearing about one horrible thing after another, this chapter is the opposite of that. This chapter is one round of good news after another. And so that is... That is Romans chapter 8 in, in a nutshell is that we are getting all of the good news, all of the, the wonderful things that happen because we are saved. That is what God is, is, is doing. That's what, that's what the whole argument that Paul has built has been about is this is that victory. And it's wonderful that we sang victory in Jesus because that's what this is about. Um, so through this whole study of Romans, we've gotten some, some bad news and some exceedingly great news. So we have been told that we're, uh, we're all doomed by sin, uh, but we've also been told how we can be redeemed. We have discovered that even after our redemption, we're still waging a war against sin in our own lives. Everything that Paul says so far comes to a crescendo here in chapter 8. It is the victory lap. It is the good news. It is one good thing after another. Um, he begins to really focus on the victory that we have in Jesus. And so in keeping with the theme uh, of victory in this chapter, Paul's revealing the wonderful truth that we have been brought into the family of God as part of our salvation. So you might say, what does it mean to be saved? And it would take a very long time to answer that question because there's a lot of things that happen for us and to us and about us when we are saved. And so this morning, the focus is going to be on the fact that we are brought into the family of God when we are saved. So the sermon in the sentence is this. Those who die to themselves with Jesus will live as brothers and sisters with him for all eternity. So I'm going to read to you uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 12 through verse 17. Real short passage of scripture there. Um, it says, So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a, the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So, let's look at this in three parts. The first thing that we're really going to look at uh, is debtors to the Spirit. Okay, so he starts off by saying we're not debtors to the flesh, um, but we live according to the Spirit. So, in this passage, Paul's going to introduce an idea, or he does introduce an idea, that he hasn't mentioned at all in this book yet. Um, so he's going to tell us that we've been adopted by God, uh, but the first thing he's going to bring up and actually put down is our sin nature, and this is the last time we'll actually talk about our sin nature in this passage, but Paul has not said up to this point anywhere in this letter that we are sons and daughters of God. He has not mentioned the fact that God adopts us into his family. This is like burying the lead, I guess you would say. He has not mentioned up to this point yet that we are going to become not just saved by God, but adopted by God, brought into the family. And I want to talk as we go through this about how important that is. But first, we have to talk about this sin nature. He says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so at first when we read this, that may not make a whole lot of sense, but we will get into this. So we know that sin brings death. That has been displayed throughout the book of Romans so far. Sin brings death. And that sin can also destroy us. Um, and so, um, well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but we are not debtors to the flesh. Um, meaning that we will not live in service to the flesh any longer. So that's, that's the first thing it says, that we won't live in service to the flesh. So we're not debtors. And what does that mean? So debtors means that you've got to work for that. Um, so if you owe money or, or anything, then you have to work to work off that debt, no matter what it is. And so, like, if you go home today and you turn on a light bulb, well, you are now a debtor to Alabama Power or whoever your, your electric company is until you pay that off. And so you've got to make sure that you can pay that off. And so what Paul is saying is that we become debtors to the flesh before we are saved. But once we are delivered by Jesus Christ, we are no longer debtors. We don't owe death anything or we don't owe sin anything. And so the picture is that, that Jesus actually cancels our debt. He deletes our debt. He, 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 he wipes it away. There's, there's, a, there's a place somewhere else where he says the, the page where our debts were written down has been marked, paid in full. Jesus has covered our debts. And so we don't owe anything, so we don't have to live in bondage to that flesh or to that sin any longer. So the point is, if we are going to be a true Christian, one who inherits death, not life, and, and let, me, let me say, and the reason that I said true Christian, the reason I kind of put that that way, is because there are people that walk around claiming to be Christians, but there's a lot of things that they have not yet done. One thing that some people that claim to be Christians have not done is they have not repented of their sins. That's part of being a Christian is turning away from your sin. You cannot turn to God without turning away from your sin. They're just not compatible. 
Following God and staying in your sin is not compatible. It just doesn't work. And so there are people that will not repent from, of their sins, and so they are not really true followers of, of God. There are other people who maybe they agree that their sin is wrong and want to turn away from it, but they just don't believe the gospel. They don't really believe it the way they need to. They agree with it in their mind, but there is a whole different level when we talk about faith. There is a difference between knowledge and faith, and maybe they don't do that. But if we are going to be true Christians, the kind that inherits death and not life, or mm, the, the kind that inherit life and not death, Paul says we must, be, we must not be the debt-paying slave of flesh, that old, rebellious, subordinate, self-sufficient nature that we have. Okay, so when we look at the very definition of sin, sin, flesh, all these words that we've been talking about the last few weeks, the one thing that we see is that in this passage, or in this group of passages, Paul makes sin out to be like a person. A person that is out to get you. A person that is looking for every opportunity to lure you away from God. A person that is looking for every opportunity to destroy you. So when we see sin, we see flesh, we see sin nature, um, we see uh, deeds of the body, which is something that he says here, we need to really think about the force of evil. So we need to think about Satan. We need to think about the fact that he is working against us. He is trying to drive a wedge between us and God. And so that's the thing that we need to think about. And, and the reality is when we live a life that is still serving the flesh, that means that we are serving our own death. We're financing our own destruction. So that's, that's essentially, um, Paul is saying don't live that way because it only leads to death. So we do not owe this world even a second glance because Jesus has made us free. That is important for us to remember. So, what's going on in the world? Well, we can look. We need to know. We need to be aware. But we don't pay homage to the world. We don't owe the world anything. We are not responsible for doing what the world requires. We are responsible for doing what God requires. He will sort all things out. Remember, and it's just a simple, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And in the context that he said that, he says, he talks about um, birds and, and the food that they need. And he talks about uh, flowers and just look how pretty the flowers are. He talks about the flowers and says, they don't worry about their clothing. So when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, he wasn't saying, you know, seek first the kingdom of God before you get your dream house. Or seek first the kingdom of God before you get your bass boat. Or seek first the kingdom of God before you get fill in the blank. He's saying seek first the kingdom of God before you get your food and your clothing. The basic things that you need in life, put God above even those things. And so that's what he's saying there. That's what Jesus is saying. And so we don't owe the world anything. None of it. God sorts that out. And that's where faith really comes in. So when we talk about being free from sin... And, and really, kind of what he says here, killing the sin or destroying the sin in our lives, um, we must be careful that we think about our own sin. This is an important reminder. Many times when people hear sermons about sin or they, they, they hear people talk about sin, the first thing they want to do is say, well, I know somebody that does this, and I know somebody that does that. Um, and, and, and you can sometimes see people glancing across the, the church to different people, not in this church, because um, all y'all sit over there. And, you know, but, um, but the point is, you can see people sometimes immediately saying, oh, you know, I, I know so-and-so needs to hear this, and, and I hope they're listening, or I, I hope that they are. I wish they could hear. 
that's not what we need to do. Um, far too often we think about what somebody else is doing, but you need to realize that the words in this passage that Paul is speaking about sin is fiercely personal. It is, it is targeted at us, at our own hearts. And so when we read a passage like this and he talks about putting to death or mortifying the sins in, in our lives, it is us. It is not time for us to go around and tell people what their sin is. It is time for us to look deeply in our own hearts, deeply in our own lives, and accuse our own self of sin, and then turn away from that sin. And actually, the language there is more or less kill that sin. So, put to death your own sins, because it is your own sins that are trying to put you to death. Um, So the second blank that you have there, living according to our own desires will lead only to death. This is a reality that Paul has made over and over again. Sin leads to death. There's a classic Christian book that's entitled The Mortification of Sin in Believers. It's written by a guy named John Owen, and he makes a statement. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Um, And that may not be the best grammar, but I don't think they'd admitted that when he wrote the book. Um, Great time to live. Uh, and many people write in their Bibles this statement that says, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And I believe those two statements are related. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it tells us that the, the, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Now, if we read carefully in verse 14, um, Paul, or 13, Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's not just, hey, try harder, be gooder. That's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying is put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, we've got to be killing, killing sin, and that's what John Owen says, we'll either be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And, and, then, and then this other statement, you know, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This is the sword of the Spirit. This is the, God's communication to us. And so what this really means is that this is how God is going to help us get away from sin, to destroy sin, to, to, to end, you know, basically end sin's reign and sin's, sin's power in our life, is the Word of God. Okay, so when we face temptation, when we face struggles, so th- there's, there's two things about it. One... Obviously, we need to meet it with a firm no. We need to say, no, I will not sin. But the next thing we need to do is be looking to the Word of God for reassurances, for passages that make it clear that we're making the right choice. What has God said on this issue? This is something that I don't know that we do enough of, not any of us, because if you really had the ammunition that you need, when you're going through that struggle, you're going through that time where it's like, I want to do this. When you're going through that struggle, but if you can actually quote... Scripture or read Scripture that speaks opposite of what your sin nature wants you to do, that gives you another power. That is putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That's what that is. So when we look at this um, killing sin by the Spirit, I think there's four questions we need to ask. What are the deeds of the body? So we need to know what are the deeds of the body that we need to put to death. Um, What does killing them mean? What does it mean to put them to death? And how do we do it by the Spirit? Um, And what does the Spirit mean? And also, another little question here, does this threat of death mean that I can lose my salvation? Because notice what he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Presumably at this point he's talking to Christians, so... Can Christians lose their salvation? I don't believe that's what um, Paul is teaching at all. So let's answer that last one first. 
Um, can, uh, is the fact that we're being threatened with death, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? The short answer is no. And the reason for that is that killing sin is the result and evidence of justification. In other words, if we are working towards a, a life of righteousness that proves that God's already there. Because if, if you'll remember what we have said in the past and what Paul has said is that before we met Jesus, we were slaves to sin. We could not resist it. It took over us. It had power and dominion over us. It reigned over us. And so if we are walking towards God, if we're walking towards righteousness, that means that God is in there doing that. And so that is, that is the result and the evidence of justification. Um, it is also, uh, another, another way to state it, is killing sin is the effect and not the cause of our justification. In other words, you're, you're not going to get rid of your sin and then be justified. No, you're justified first because Jesus died first. And then as a result of that or as a cause of that, we're going to be getting away from our sin. And we're going to be putting to death those ways and those patterns and those habits. That's what this, is, this, is, that's what this means. So, the second thing, what are the deeds of the body that we need to put to death? Well, to answer that, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. We did this a couple of weeks ago. But we're going to talk about Romans chapter 6. Now, one thing that Paul made very clear is that we are not to allow our bodies to become members of unrighteousness. In other words, we're not, we're not supposed to let ourselves be used by sin. And so that's, that's one of the things. So sin is almost like this personification. It's, it's just out there. Okay, and, and so a sin nature is not the same as deeds of the body. So the sin nature is the desire to do things, the temptation to do things. The deed is what we actually do. And so that's what he's saying put to death. We will never really totally get rid of that sin nature while we're here on this earth, but we can put to death those deeds. And that's the first part is don't let yourself, don't let your body, don't let your life be used in unrighteousness. Don't let your causes, don't let the things that you work towards be used for unrighteousness. And so that's an important thing that we have to realize. So he also told us in the very same chapter, chapter 6, don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. So we're putting to death the reign of sin in our lives. This is another thing that Jesus is doing for us. He's the one that is taking away the power of sin. Sin has ultimate power in the life of a non-believer. It does. They may not do every bad thing, but they will do bad things and they won't be able to stop it. But as believers, because Jesus has taken the throne, that sin once reigned in our lives, and Jesus has taken that away. And so what that means is that we can now say no. If you are a subject to a sovereign king, you cannot say no without losing your life but when we now belong to Jesus instead of sin we can say no and so that is another thing that he is doing in our lives and not something that we are doing ourselves and then finally this is like in verse 5 um, Paul told us that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body um, of sin might be done away with and so we are literally with Jesus in Death, And so that is, that is part of this putting to death the deeds of the body is being with Jesus. So when Christ died, we died with him if we are united with him in faith. We died with him so that we might demonstrate this death by putting to death sinful deeds of the body. So we are not physically dead, but that old life 
that life of sin, that life of being dominated by sin, that life leading to destruction, that is what's dead. And that is how we identify with the death of Christ. And so that's important. That is very, very important with us. So Jesus won the victory over sin so we can kill the sin that Jesus himself has already defeated. That's also important because we need to remember that we can't expect lost people to defeat sin in their lives. Jesus has to defeat it first, and then they can put it to death. That's, that's order of operations right there. So what does it actually mean to kill these deeds of the body? What does that actually mean? Well, it means that we must cut off the lifeline of sinful deeds to the body. So Jesus stated that sin, ultimately, it comes from the heart. So what you say, so basically what he said is what you see goes into your heart, and then what you say comes from your heart. So he talked about that, that lifeline there, and that's what we have to choke out. That's what we have to stop, is we have to stop feeding sin in our lives. And, and that's something that we do sometimes, is we feed sin one way or the other. And um, let me confess, sometimes paying attention to what's going on in the world feeds that lifeline. It feeds it too much. Because what, what do we do? We start getting ideas in our head. We start paying attention to things that, that aren't God. And so, yes, it, it's important to know what's going on, but there has to be a limit. There has to be a line that we don't cross because the reality is what we need to be saturating our souls with is the Word of God. We don't need to be filling our minds and our heads with what the world is saying. We need to be filling our minds and head with what God is saying. And that then will help us to kind of close that lifeline. Um, so we have to understand. Uh, we have been told just earlier, that our flesh is hostile to God. So your very sin nature that lives in you is always hostile to God. This was along about the time where I told you, you know, if your heart is speaking to you, you might want to tell it to hush, because the reality is the heart is not going to lead us where we need to go. The Word of God will lead us where we need to go. So it ultimately comes down to heart surgery. Um, so, how do we conquer sin by the Spirit? How, how do we do that? How do we actually use the Spirit to conquer sin? So, the first thing is that we must set our minds on things of the Spirit. So, what are the things of the Spirit? Well, the things of the Spirit are the Word of God. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that the things of the Spirit are the words of God. Um, so, to kill sin by the Spirit, we should set our mind on the words of God and the realities that they stand for. God has made promises throughout His Word. He has laid down His law. He has explained to us what He expects. And we need to recognize that for what it is. Um, we have to actually listen to the Word of God um, as words of love and not words of law. In other words, accepting, accepting them by faith, not as directives. So, when you receive directives... We go by and we obey those directives. But when we receive the teaching of God as it is a way of life, we internalize it. We, we accept it. And then we know how it applies in other situations. If you tell somebody exactly what to do, step by step, you hand them a piece of paper and say, this is what you do. When something goes wrong, we don't know how to fix that. We don't know how to, to repair that. We don't know how to change that. But God teaches us His Word, and it is supposed to come into our hearts then we are supposed to live it the way that we're supposed to. Um, so this, this ultimately is going to take all of our attention for the rest of our lives, and we must be fully committed if we're going to overcome sin. So here's the thing. Just as intently as we used to live according to our own wills, now we live according to the will of God by walking in the Spirit. 
this is what's important. It took all of your, whether you realize it or not, it took all of your energy to live the way you were living. However I was living, however you were living, when we were living in rebellion to God, it took all of our energy, it took all of our focus. And so we need to turn that around and put all of our energy and all of our focus on walking after God. That means knowing His Word. That means watching out, keeping watch over what's going on. The Bible so many times tells us to be vigilant, to be aware, to be watchful. We have to be watchful of those things. Now let's get into the really, really, really good news. We are adopted. So as we move to verse 14, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now it's important for us to point out the paradox that's, that's there. It's important for us to recognize this. So it is our responsibility to put to death the deeds of the body, um, but we are to do that in the Spirit. So you might ask the question, are we putting to death sin in our lives or is God putting to death sin in our lives for us? And the answer is yes. So th this, is, this is one of those places where in the Bible we see that there is, there is the, the sovereign will of God, but there is also at the very same time the will of the human, the free will of the human, and they are both at play here. So we have to choose to walk away from our sin. That is our responsibility. And we have to make that choice daily. You know, take up the cross and follow Jesus daily. We have to do that daily. We have to make that choice. Okay? But at the same time, we don't have just default victory over sin. That victory comes from Jesus Christ. So he is putting that power in us. And the Spirit is leading us. He is actively taking us where we need to go. So that's important. And then what he says here in verse 14 is that for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So we are being led by the Spirit. So uh, we are putting to death the deeds of the body, um, but at the same time the Spirit is working and doing that in us. So when we are led by the Spirit, we are sons of God. And the evidence uh, that we are children of God is that the Holy Spirit confirmed His presence by leading us to war against the sin in our lives. That's what he is leading us to do. So it is a struggle. This doesn't mean that Christians won't sin. This doesn't mean that we won't still do things that we shouldn't do, that we know are against God's word. What it means is that we will struggle. We will fight. If you ever find yourself in a place where you are complacent, where you are satisfied with your sins, that's when you really need to go to looking and soul searching. But as long as it is a fight, as long as it is a struggle, as long as the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the remade part of you is fighting against that sin and saying, no, I will not do this, then you know that God is working in you. And that is the evidence of it, that God is working in you. That is the proof of it. And that is what we need to always look for. So it's going to be there. So... Christians become like God because we have His Spirit living inside of us. That's why we become conformed to the image of Christ. The Bible says that we have the same Spirit in us that was in Christ Jesus. That's why we become like Him because He's put that Spirit in us. We can become like Him. When we come into a faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord adopts us as sons and daughters. Now let's talk about adoption for a minute. We know what adoption is in modern society, but Paul wasn't in modern society. He was in the first century and pretty much from a Roman perspective. And so let me explain what that would look like. So for, from a Roman family, if they were going to adopt, 
They didn't feel like they needed to just adopt because there's compassionate reasons now that we should adopt. But in those days, they didn't adopt for compassionate reasons. It was typically when a, a Roman man either had no confidence in his naturally born son or he had no naturally born son. And in that case, he would very selectively choose a young man to be both his son that would carry on his name and also his son that would retain and, and, and carry forth his own property, take the inheritance. And so what this means is that in Paul's day, adoption meant that you were a son in every legal and emotional and spiritual way possible, and it was irrevocable. That's the, that's the picture of what we get with true adoption, biblical adoption. Paul is saying, if you are adopted, that means you were handpicked by God to not only be his son, to carry on his name, but also to receive that same inheritance. So look at what he says here in verse 15. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons who, uh, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So that spirit of slavery, we didn't go from slaves to sin to, to slaves to God. I know that terminology is used at certain points, but Paul is illustrating the fact that we didn't become slaves to God. We became children of God. We are crying out in that spirit of Abba, Father. And so that's a very, very important thing that we have to get. And so God is replacing the fearful relationship of a slave towards a master with a loving relationship that a son has for his father. So we've been freed from sin, we've been freed from bondage, and we have been set free from this world. It is all about the freedom that God is giving us, and that comes because we are adopted. So, we do not have to fall back into sin or fear the world because we are His. And so, this is what he's saying is, 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 is you don't belong to the world. You don't belong to sin. You are not the same that you were. You are now new. You are now mine. You are now my son. You are now my daughter. You are now going to carry on my name. And isn't that probably one of the best ways to describe what Christians are supposed to do is carry on the name of God? The Bible tells us at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 that we were created in the image of God. We're supposed to go around with that banner. Here is God. Here is God. We're supposed to be proclaiming who God is. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so we are proclaiming the image of God, perpetuating His name, but also we are going to inherit with Jesus. Now what did Jesus inherit? Well, God said that He's going to make the whole world His footstool. So, so there's a lot that... that we will inherit. So we'll have to get into that. So our relationship with God is just as personal as the relationship we have with our earthly fathers. So that word Abba, that is the most tender, most affectionate, most authentic word that you can find for father in, in the Middle East in the first century. It is, and it still is to this day. So if you were to go to a place where Aramaic is pretty much the, the common language to this day, and you were to see a father coming home from a journey, walking down the road, and you were to see like his little son come running out and running down the street towards his father, you know, in America, we he would be saying, Daddy, Daddy. But, but in a Middle Eastern country where they speak Aramaic, he would be saying, Abba, Abba. And so it is that childlike love and relationship that we have. And so uh, let me be careful. Yes, we, we most of us here are grown-ups. But when it comes to our relationship with God, Jesus always told us that it should be a childlike faith. And we should have a childlike love for our Father. He has given us that spirit and we must use it. It is, it is deep, it is affectionate, it's personal, it's authentic. So 
This reminds us of our relationship uh, with God is not all about what we know. Because even the devil knows doctrine, but he does not have the spirit of the child crying out, Father. So God has made us his children, and the spirit testifies to this by leading us to righteousness. And so that's very, very important. The spirit is leading us into righteousness, and that is the evidence, that is the proof, that is the reality that we are saved. Um, it's worth it to maybe, if you ever have any doubts, if you ever unsure about your, your salvation or how you stand with God, read 1 John. 1 John, over and over, John says, these things are written so that you may know. God wants you to know where you stand with Him. He doesn't want you wondering, I hope I go to heaven. You ask people, now I hope I'm going to go to heaven. Well, God has made it so that we can know. And one of the realities, one of the things that we know is that He has put His Spirit in us. He is making us like Him. He has given us this spirit of a child crying out, Abba, Father. And He is leading us to righteousness. Now let's talk about the heirs here. Let's talk about what it means to be an heir. So it's important to point out here that even with the discussion about putting to death the deeds of the body, we are saved forevermore. So will Christians continue to have sin and struggle with sin? Absolutely. But we are saved forevermore. Far from ever rejecting a believer, God establishes us as joint heirs with His Son. Listen to verse 17 again. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. No Christian that is self-aware would ever put ourselves on the level of Jesus Christ. None of us would. But God does. He raises us. And look, when you're raising somebody from the pit, how high you put them up, that's up to you. He puts us as joint heirs with Christ. This is a beautiful and a powerful truth, and it's something that's very, very important for us to recognize. Now, in verse 17, because I didn't read all of it at that moment, uh, in verse 17, Paul gives us some spectacular and he gives us some scary news. So let me read the rest of it. So joint heirs, uh, fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. So, the New Testament is full of warnings that believers will suffer because of their faith. Um, and, and I think that's important for us to remember. So, what are we inheriting? Well, we're inheriting the world that was promised to Jesus, so it will be ours as well. We're in, inheriting God Himself um, because Jesus said um, th th that He prays that they would have eternal life. And what is eternal life? But God Himself. And so it's important that we have God, but also, but, but, you know, inheriting is that eternal life. It is the future glory. It is, it is time in heaven. So those are the things that we are getting. Um, but in, in true human form, we're going to look a little bit at the suffering and what does this mean for us and, 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 and why, why, is it, why is the suffering linked with being an heir with Jesus Christ? So here's what we know. The New Testament's full of these warnings that we're going to suffer because of our faith. That's, that's a given. And we know that the New Testament believers, so the disciples, all but one met with a violent death. Uh, John, from what we can tell, was not martyred, but they tried. Um, it just didn't take. Um, so we know that most Christians go through some kind of suffering. And in the first century, second century, and even you know, well, all, all the third even, most of the Christians that suffered, suffered because of their faith. Once you get into the fourth century and beyond, when Christianity kind of became mainstream, some things were different, but people still suffered. And those that stuck to the actual Word of God definitely would continue to suffer. So we might ask what suffering is in, in, in view um, and we will see later that, that suffering, uh, any suffering, the, uh, Paul mentions that the, 
the creation itself is groaning. And, and this groaning of the creation is part of the suffering, so it can be literally anything that we might would face, but not necessarily. So it could be any hardship that we face on the road to heaven, um, um, and we endure it by trusting Jesus. So that's, that's the point. So are you going through a hard time? Are you complaining about it? Are, 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 are you saying, why me, Lord? Why am I going through this? Or are, are you looking at ways to escape it? Are you looking for reasons why it happened? That's not trusting Jesus through that suffering. But any suffering that you have, if you trust Jesus to get you through it, that is part of the suffering, okay? So it's not just persecution, although that's a very possible reality for all Christians in the world at any given time. But what we know is that the suffering that we go through on a day-to-day basis, there are many ways to go through that suffering. And some go through that suffering in such a way that they are the victims and they are the story and it is their tragedy. But then some go through suffering and they trust Jesus to bring them through it. And it could be anything. It could be health-related. It could be weather-related. It can be problems in the family. It can be loss of a loved one. But it can also be persecution. It can be every problem that we might would face. But those are the things. So you might ask, why? If we have been saved, if we belong to God, why would we suffer? And the reality is, Paul's actually already told us this. So in Romans chapter 5, he says that uh, tribulations brings about perseverance. And so perseverance is part of what we need. So it is part of the refining work of God in our lives. So yes, there are going to be times that we're blessed beyond all measure, and, and we are learning how to be, show gratitude. We are learning how to praise and worship God. And there are going to be times where we go through very difficult times, and we're going to be learning how to persevere. Both of those lessons are important to us as believers. So although suffering will be miserable, we must keep our understanding on God's promises before us uh, so that we will be able to say with the apostle, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's what we're looking for. Not what we might face now because it's temporary. Paul even says light in some translations. It is not what we need to focus on. We need to focus on the glory that is to come. So we will have enemies and we will face suffering but we will also be glorified with Jesus. And so that is what we have to look forward to. So there is, there is the really great news. Hey, you're a joint heir with Christ. Whatever he gets, you get. But he also got the cross. He also got the crown of thorns. He also died. And so we're going to have to face those things as well, but ultimately we're going to join with Christ in his glory. So, you know, there's really no better feeling than being treated like family. And Jesus has made us part of the family of God. You can be around friends, you can be around, you know, any number of people that it might feel supportive, but being part of a family, that is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And we are His, and we know it, because we do not live in sin. That's one way we know we're in God's family, because He has rescued us from our sin. We are His, and we know it, because we have the Spirit inside of us. If you ever wonder, is the Spirit living inside of you? Is he, is, is he there? Is He really there? Is there a litmus test? Is there some way to know? Is He leading you in paths of righteousness? Then yes, He's there. Is He leading you to wage war against the sin in your life? Then yes, He's there. That is the evidence of it. You know, 
share one construction story. Oh, we're over time. I'll share one construction story. I've probably shared this before, but uh, we, were, we were working on a power plant one time, and it was snowing. We were in Kentucky, and it was snowing. It was snowing so bad that you could do this, and, and you could see more snow than you could hand. It was snowing that bad. Well, construction workers don't like working in bad weather, and, and so we have to work when it's hot. We have to work when it's cold, so if there's water or any form of it falling out of the sky, we don't want to work. And so they radioed to the boss and said, hey, it's, it's, it's snowing. Um, can we go home? And he radioed back and said, well, according to the radar, it's not snowing yet. Well, we knew because of the evidence of that white stuff falling out of the sky, it was snowing. Okay. And so how do we know that the Spirit is inside of us? Because of the evidence of what he's doing. That's how we know. We also know uh, that we are his. Uh, and we know it because we have been given the spirit of a child crying out to his father. Remember, the flesh inside of you is hostile to God. If you are crying out to God like you are his child, then you are his child because he put that spirit in you. Otherwise, you had the spirit of slavery in you. Otherwise, you had that domineering spirit inside of you. So if you look to God as your savior, as your father, as the one that you love, he is yours and you are his. So, we know we are His and we know it because even though we will suffer in this life, we know that we will be glorified in the next life. And let me tell you, this is the best news that we could ever imagine. And it is news that we need to declare to everyone that we meet. It's worthy of telling everyone. So many times people kind of pigeonhole Christians and say what we believe. They can't communicate what we believe like we can because we have lived it, we have experienced it. I believe in a God who looks past our sin and sees Jesus. He sees what Jesus has done and he loves us. He accepts us, he adopts us into his family and he begins to lead us into a much, much better life than what we had before. So we are not going to have to tell people you're wrong for this and you're wrong for this and you've got to fix all these things before you can come to God. No, we're just going to tell people look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the one that will begin the work in them. This is worth telling everyone. There's so many things we could talk about. There's so many things that we could say. But look, the most important thing is pointing people to Jesus because He can change not just their lives, He can change their future, He can change who they are, He can change their destiny. And so let's tell people about Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for this time. And Lord, as a... As an afterthought, many times in our prayers, we, we address you as Father. Remind us this morning that that is a gift that you have given us because we are your children. We do not just address you as King, although you are our King. We do not just address you as Lord or God or Sovereign. You are all of those things, but you are also our Father. And that is the spirit you have given us. And so I pray that you help us to appreciate that this morning. And dear Father, this relationship that you have given us, we know that you want us to tell other people about it. So I pray that we will follow the leadership of the spirit that you've placed in us and let us tell others about you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.